Welcome back to the Frozen Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. Happy New Year, everyone. This is a podcast where we discuss the people, the places, and the events of the North American fur trade. If you were listening back in May, you might recall the Mother's Day special was about the roles that women play in the fur trade as well as on the frontiers. Women were the creators of the trade merchandise, the brokers of deals, and the interpreters between language barriers. They kept the men fed, clothed, and warm, administered mountain medicine, and served as guides for mountain men in unfamiliar territory. And while most of their names were lost through history, there are a few who were immortalized in journals and for company records and military reports. And today we're going to talk about a few of those women. Our first woman of note is a Dene teenager from the central Arctic area of Canada in what today would be northern Saskatchewan and Manitoba. The Dene people had for centuries been arch enemies with the Cree people to the east, and generally the Dene did their best to avoid contact. Since the white man's arrival was first in the east, the Cree had been introduced to the white tools and firearms first so they had an upper hand when it came to conflict with their neighbors. The Dene were still using stone axes and antler tools while the Cree were carrying the white man's iron axe and rifle. It wasn't a fair fight. And the Dene were smart people. They knew they didn't stand a chance, so they just avoided contact as much as possible. But both of these nations were competing for the same resources in the same hunting grounds, so conflict was inevitable. It was frequent, and it was fierce. Into this world of generations of warfare is born a little girl named Thanadelther. She was born a hundred years before cameras were even invented, so there is no image of her, not even a painting. That photo often associated with her is just a generic Dene woman, but we do actually know what she looked like because she was described in journals. This little spit of a woman stood about five feet tall. She was slender and she was beautiful in appearance and feisty. She was a determined she-wolf by nature. The most memorable thing about her that was most often commented on was the fire in her pretty eyes. Well, in 1713, sometime around the age of 17 years old, she was accompanying a small party out hunting for caribou. Her cousin, a woman whose name history never records, was also with the party. A band of Cree attacked the hunting party, taking the two women prisoners. Thenadelther and her cousin were forced into a horrific state of slavery for over a year. Now, during that time in captivity, Thenadelther saw the, the white man's tools, the guns and the household utensils and metal knives, and she listened to the conversations among the Cree men about going to trade furs for new tools with those white people at the fort, which is what the Cree called Hudson's Bay Company's York factory. Thenadelther wanted her own people to have these comforts and the benefits that came from trading with the white people. She saw the relatively easy life that the Cree had compared to her tribes, and she wanted that for them. So when she got the opportunity by which I mean that her master was busy at a tribal meeting, she and her cousin slipped into the night. But in the last year of captivity, they had been taken far from their homeland. It took them over a year to get back to the area where the Dene lived. 
By the time they had crossed the vast wilderness of the continent, winter had set in. They were starving, and Thenadelther's cousin had fallen ill. Sadly, her cousin died of starvation and exposure. But Thenadelther pressed on through the cold, brutal winter on the edge of starvation herself. Five days after her cousin's death, Thenadelther crossed the line of footprints in the snow. The tracks led her to the tent of a team of goose hunters employed by the Hudson's Bay Company. The hunters fed her and treated her for exposure and then took her to safety at the York factory in Manitoba. On November 24, 1714, Chief Director James Knight welcomed her at the York factory, and he was extremely pleased to learn that this half-starved, half-frozen woman not only spoke the language of the Korean Dene, but she also spoke English, because he had big, big plans. The next spring, in 1715, Knight enlisted her aid. He wanted to form a trade agreement with the Dene, but to do this, he first needed a peace treaty between the Dene and the Cree. James Knight needed a guide and an interpreter to lead his delegation north into the lands of the Dene and to broker that deal. He didn't need to stress how important a lasting peace was. Thanadelther knew it. The trade deal with her people was exactly what she wanted. So James Knight entrusted her safety to an Englishman named William Stewart. He loaded this group up with gifts for the Dene people, and he sent them north on June 27, 1715. But disaster seemed to lurk around every corner of their ten-month-long journey. During this winter travel, sickness and starvation were constant pressing issues, so much so that the large party broke into smaller groups to improve their chances of survival. As these small groups fell back one by one, it became evident that Thenadelther's group, led by William Stewart, would be going on alone. The Stewart party themselves nearly threw in the towel several times, but when they came across the bodies of nine freshly killed Dene in a recent Cree raid, it seemed that all the frayed nerves snapped. Fearing revenge was about to befall them, William Stewart and his Cree associates almost bolted. But Thanadelther jumped to the helm. She started berating them as cowards and verbally accosting them for the way that they had treated her people. William Stewart more than once had to remind them that no harm was to come to her. Finally, she convinced them to just stay where they were and set up camp, stating that she would go find her people and bring them back. It goes without saying that taking two nations that have been at war with each other for countless generations and putting them together at a bargaining table is no small task. Even today, especially in the current situation our world is in, it takes months of negotiating and several delegations to accomplish something this immense. So for this tiny teenager, this is going to be the motivational speech of a lifetime. What's more, it took her a few days of walking in the fierce driving snow squalls to get to her village. When she finally found her people, remember, she's been away for a year. She just talked and talked and talked until her voice grew hoarse. She tried reasoning with them, and she tried logic, and then she tried begging and pleading. Nothing was working. 
After several days, she finally convinced the Dene to agree to come. But it had been ten days since she'd left Stuart's party, and the Stuart men had decided she'd gone, she wasn't coming back, so they had begun to break up camp. Finally, in what would make for a magnificent Hollywood movie entrance in the 11th hour, then a Delther appeared, leading the Dene to the conference. But the Dene were so fearful, they were hesitant to sit down with their mortal enemy. Many of them hid behind trees and bushes. Their resolve was faltering. So Thenadelther scolded them and prodded them and pleaded with them. She was pushing people out from behind trees. She'd grab the women by their coats and pull them up to the meeting place. She stamped her feet in disgust and she chided them, shouting, Do you want to live like hunted rabbits? She very literally forced them to come out of hiding and to come to the negotiating table. When the Dene finally approached and began to take their seats, she's said to have jumped up on a stump and sang a victory song. And William Stewart was just beside himself in awe of this young woman. It is at that very moment that this petite little firecracker of a teenager changed the story of the Dene Nation forever. She also changed the future for Hudson's Bay Company because she opened a new trade network not only with the Dene, but with all the other tribes in the northern regions. And Hudson's Bay Company has credited her with that success in all of their documentation and their recorded history. She's revered by the First Nations Canadians everywhere, but particularly by the Dene. She's a role model for Dene teenagers to remind them that one young woman can make a difference in the world. In fact, the Dene women today wear red during the month of February to honor her memory and that of the other strong women in their nation. In January of 1717, Thenadelther fell ill. For weeks, she lay on her deathbed, fighting a fever. And during lucid moments, it said that she taught a young English boy words in Dene, so that someone would always be able to speak of peace for her people. She died February 5th, 1717, at the tender age of 20. And this brings me to one of the most ironic things about this woman and her story. In almost every record, even Hudson's Bay Company's early documents, where they gave her credit for all of her accomplishments, she is not named She's referred to as the slave woman. These men who had so much appreciation and respect for all her efforts still address her by a degrading label, not her real name. Eventually, as time goes on, the records do begin to show her name as being Thenadelther, which is always followed by, and I quote, comma, the slave woman. It's only in relatively recent eras that this moniker has changed to reflect the magnitude of her accomplishment. For she is now known as Thenadelther, comma, the peacemaker. The next woman we're going to meet is credited as being the first female business owner in the state of Michigan. Her story begins in 1780, when a baby girl named Magdalene Marco was born at Fort St. Joseph, which is near present-day Niles, Michigan. She was born to a fur trader of the Northwest Company named Jean-Baptiste Marco, 
and his Ottawa wife, Marie Nisketch. Marie was herself the daughter of a prominent Ottawa leader known as Chief Returning Cloud. And this newest daughter of the Marco family would have had the best of both worlds. While she was raised by her mother in Ottawa traditions, she would also have been given all of the benefits of the white world. She would have grown up speaking French and English, as well as Ojibwa and Ottawa. Shortly after Magdalene was born, the British abandoned Fort St. Joseph, fearing they would be overrun as the American Revolution kicked off. So the family moved to Fort Mackinac. They soon relocated once more to the safety of Mackinac Island. Jean-Baptiste had been a pack trader who traveled from one jackknife post to the next. For those unfamiliar, a jackknife post is a trading post that's open while the trader is there, and closed during the times he isn't. It was during a portage between posts in Wisconsin that Jean-Baptiste was attacked by the hostile natives. Magdalene's father died, and she was just three years old. Her mother had to raise her and her five siblings by herself. So they moved back to the Ottawa village at Grand Haven, Michigan, where her grandfather, Chief Returning Cloud, lived. In 1794... Magdalene, now age 14, married fur trader Joseph Lefermbois, and the two of them began their life together. Joseph was a devout Roman Catholic, and Magdalene adopted his religion wholeheartedly. And when I say devout, I do mean devout. This couple would stop three times a day to kneel and say prayers, no matter if they were knee-deep in a swamp or up to their hips in snow. Joseph had been a jackknife trader for years by now, and had already established himself in the territory of Wisconsin and Grand River, Michigan. He had built a chain of trading posts in the area, and he was very well respected by the Ottawa people that he had been trading with. This was a very prestigious marriage for both of them. Their first child was born the following year, in 1795. She was a little girl named Josette. For the next ten years... Magdalene followed her husband through the wilderness, trapping and collecting furs. And in 1805, their son, Joseph Jr., was born. And the small family continued to make their circuits through the villages, trading goods for the furs the Ottawa collected. They also worked their own independent trap lines. Well, in 1806, Magdalene's husband was conducting an impromptu trade at Muskegon when a band of drunken natives came in and they demanded fire water. Joseph refused to trade with them, and they left in a huff. But they returned later that night, and in front of the horrified Magdalene and her two children, they killed the traitor in a bloody rage. Now, alone in the wilderness with a ten-year-old and a one-year-old, Magdalene built a travois, and she took her husband's body back to Grand Haven and gave him a proper burial. Then, despite her grief, she set her mind to determining the future of their business. She and Joseph had been independent traders, competing with giant companies like Hudson's Bay Company and John Jacob Astor's American Fur Company. And small companies like theirs were not holding up well against the big dogs of the fur trade. Even when her husband was there to help, they struggled. So now, having to carry that burden alone... Well, that was going to be a challenge. 
Well, let me tell you, this devoutly Catholic woman with a one-year-old strapped to her back knew her stuff. What's more, she was exceptionally good at it. She did the trapping and hunting herself, and she worked out a method by which she would start trapping in rural areas where wildlife was plentiful, and she would work her way towards the big cities. There, she would trade her furs at a high price, pick up low-valued goods, and trade them on the way back for other furs. At a time when an average independent trader could secure somewhere like 75 or 80 bills for a year, and they net around $1,000 annually, this woman was hauling a hundred bales or better and netting five to ten grand a year by herself. The agent of the American Fur Company was a man named Ramsey Crooks, and he was stationed at Mackinac Island. More than once, he sent a scathing letter back to John Jacob Astor complaining about Magdalene. And for her part, Magdalene saw the benefit of keeping on Astor's good side. So, starting in 1818, she actually contracted to work for him, though she still maintained her independence as a licensed trapper. And at other times, she put serious pressure on Astor. It's even rumored that he once joked about giving up trying to put her out of business, because she was simply that good. He had a lot of respect for this wily Michigan businesswoman. And then, in 1822... At the age of 41, Magdalene split her company in two, selling one half to John Jacob Astor and the other half to an independent trapper named Ricks Robinson. She retired, very comfortably, to an expansive home on Mackinac Island, where she devoted herself to living a charitable life. She built a school for Native children, she helped establish a mission for the poor, and she donated huge sums of money to the local Catholic church. She spent the rest of her life looking out for the poor and the homeless of Michigan. One other thing happened after she went into retirement. She used all this newly found free time to teach herself how to read and write. Think about that. The woman who gave seriously successful fur trappers like millionaire John Jacob Astor a run for their money. She manipulated profits and sales like a modern-day professional marketing guru, and she couldn't read or write. On top of this, she was a Métis, meaning of mixed race, in her case French and Ottawa, at a time when the Métis people were struggling to be taken seriously. They were looked down on by the Europeans as being native, and they were looked down on by the natives as being white. Yet the Métis were the whole reason the fur trade became what it did. Without the Métis, there wouldn't have been a fur trade like it was. Now let's not also forget that she's a woman. She sold her business to Astor in 1822. That is 26 years before the famous suffragette Elizabeth Cady Stanton would organize the first convention on women's rights. And almost 100 years before the 19th Amendment was ratified, giving women even basic rights. Magdalene de Framboise was light years ahead of her time, and she not only changed the face of the fur trade and the state of Michigan in her day, but she improved all the lives of Mackinac Island. Now, if you haven't noticed yet, there is a common trait in these women. It's bullheaded determination. Our third lady takes that trait to a whole new level. 
She was born on August 1st, 1781, in the eastern parish of St. Andrews on the main Isle of Orkney. Crofter John Fubister and his wife Gerzel Allen welcomed their new baby girl Mary into the hard life of the 18th century. Little is known about Mary's childhood, other than at some point she suffered from smallpox because it left her face very scarred. It's likely that Mary was at the port of Stromness when one of the frequently visiting recruiters showed up to sign on new laborers. Companies like Hudson's Bay made it a point of seeking out Orkney men and people from northern Scotland because these guys were strong, stubborn, and strapping men who were just tough as an old boot, and they were extremely capable of handling the heavy bales or capable of surviving the long journeys of the voyagers, and they were well adapted to the harsh weather conditions. They already lived in the same environment. And though we will never know why, Mary bound up her breasts, cut her long hair short, and went to speak to the recruiter. Some stories tell of a lover who spurned her, leaving her to join the throngs of working men headed to financial independence in the Canadian wilderness. And some stories tell of an older brother who shared stories of an adventure and the beautiful sceneries in the untamed fur trade of Canada. And some people reason that she was motivated by a lack of prospects on her native Orkney. When the average income for a man was under a pound sterling, and the average income for a woman was a quarter of that, what the recruiter was offering was almost ten times a man's income in a single year. We'll never know her motivation. But we do know what happened next. Mary signed on with a Hudson's Bay recruiter as a man named John Fubister. Her wage was an annual salary of eight pounds sterling. She boarded the Prince of Wales merchant ship in Stromness Harbor, which put to sea on June 29, 1806. The ship was destined for the Moose Factory in present-day Ontario, and Mary arrived in Canada in August of 1806, which made her the first European woman in Western Canada. But that's a side note. From there, the crew was sent to Fort Albany, some 81 miles north. The following month, they were sent up the Albany River to deliver provisions to a place called Henley House, with instructions to return at the end of the month with all of the gathered fur bales. Hundreds of miles, and many a cold Canadian night, Mary worked as a man, right alongside all the rest of the men of her brigade. If you listen to the Voyager's episode, you'll remember how hard this life truly was. These men lived in the elements, with no shelter, sleeping under overturned canoes, and working like pack mules, often carrying two or more of those 90-pound bales on their backs during a portage. Mary lived this way alongside the men. She never complained. She never shirked her labors. In documents, her superior officers give her credit as being hardworking and well-liked. She even earned herself a raise for being such a hard worker. In May of the following year, Mary, well, John Fubister, and his crew were sent on an 1,800-mile route, delivering trade goods and supplies to a number of Hudson's Bay posts. That fall, they joined up with another supply crew, and they spent the winter in a place called Pembina, which is in what we now call North Dakota. 
The crew enjoyed their Christmas in Pembina, celebrating the holiday together with the crew of the Northwest Company, who owned the fort they were sheltering at. The Hudson Spain men were given modest quarters, but it, they enjoyed sleeping off the ground and out of the elements, so everybody was living in it for the holidays. Some of the Northwest employees lived there full-time, including one of the local traders named Alexander Henry the Younger. Well, on December 29th, John Fubister began to feel terrible, and he begged the local trader, Alexander Henry the Younger, to shelter at his home. And it was there that the cover was blown. In Henry's own diary, he recounts the day that he discovered this hard-working Orkney man wasn't what he thought he was. I was surprised at the fellow's demand, Henry writes. However, I told him to sit down and warm himself. I returned to my room, where I had not been long before he sent one of my people requesting the favor of speaking to me. Accordingly, I stepped down to him and was much surprised to find him extended on the hearth, uttering dreadful lamentations. He stretched out his hands towards me and in piteous tones begged me to be kind to a poor, helpless, abandoned wretch who was not of the sex I had supposed, but an unfortunate Orkney girl, pregnant and actually in childbirth. Baby James was born within the hour. The story of how she got pregnant is as mysterious as her reasons for going to Canada in the first place. No one really knows the truth. One version states that a fellow Orkney man named John Scarth had discovered her true identity by accident, and he threatened to rat her out if she didn't concede to his advances. Another tells us that upon his accidental discovery of her being a woman, she begged him not to tell, and offered herself as long as he kept her secret. From Mary's accounts to the officers of Hudson's Bay, the pregnancy was the result of John Scarth raping her. According to a veteran Hudson's Bay employee named Donald Murray, the two had consensually lived as a couple for some time before Mary got pregnant. Some believe that many of her fellow laborers knew all along that she was a girl, and they simply didn't care, because she worked as hard as they did, and she received no preferential treatment. Other sources suggest that her fellow Orkney men knew on the boat ride over but out of the loyalty to their fellow countrymen and countrywomen, they kept her secret. But once that secret was out, it was game over. She was once more known as Mary Fubister, and she was sent to Albany to work as a washerwoman in 1808. She was forbade to work near any men. And while the commandant of the fort took pity on her, she was absolutely miserable. Hudson's Bay had rules against white women working at any post, for obvious reasons. First of all, women were a serious distraction to men who had been out in the wilderness for months on end. Secondly, women couldn't possibly be permitted to work alongside men because of their being frail and fragile, which blows my mind since she obviously busted that myth for the last three years. But either way, the discussion started about what to do with her. It took nearly a year to determine her fate, and on September 20th, 1809, 
Mary and her son James were forcibly deported from Canada on the Prince of Wales, the very same ship that brought them in three years earlier. Somewhere across the Atlantic, she adopted the name Isabel Gunn. Landing in Stromness, she would find the stigma of being an unwed mother overbearing as she struggled for the rest of her life to provide for herself and her son. She was a ruined woman in the eyes of society. Some versions of the story claim that she lived as a vagrant for the remainder of her long life. However, the census data shows she lived on Main Street in Stromness with her son John until her dying day. She found work as a stocking knitter, and it said that she died in abject poverty on November 7, 1861, at the age of 81. She was buried in a pauper's grave at Stromness. Now, I realize this episode is a discussion of women that affected the fur trade, and we can't really say that Isabel Gunn changed how Hudson's Bay Company did business or changed the fur trade itself. But this woman's story became an anthem for feminists who believed women were just as capable as men of handling any job they set their mind to. And she most certainly did that. This young lady not only did the same work that the men did, in the same harsh conditions, but she was pregnant for the majority of that 1,800-mile journey. That's just incredible. And many times, Isabel is referred to as the pioneer of feminism. And now leaving that pioneer, we're going to end our episode with a different pioneer. If I were to say, name the most famous woman in the early history of the creation of the United States. Most of you would probably say Sacagawea, and you would be right. Her importance and impact on our nation's history cannot be overstated. So let's meet Sacagawea. Sacagawea was a Lemhi Shoshone woman who led Lewis and Clark across the Louisiana Territory. We probably all learned this in elementary school, but the finer details of her story are what make her such a forge of nature. She was born near present-day Salmon, Idaho, and when she was 12, a warring Hidatsa band attacked her family, killing the men and the women and young boys, but sparing two young girls being herself and another Shoshone girl. And these poor kids were hauled over 500 miles away to live as slaves in the Hidatsa village in North Dakota. The following year, after a year of slavery, a French trapper from Quebec came through the camp. His name was Toussaint Charbonneau, and whether he bought the two girls outright or won them gambling, it's uncertain. There are some sources that state that one was named Otterwoman, but Otterwoman was already his non-consensual teenaged wife at the time that he met Sacagawea. So, for the record, <laughs> he would go on to have at least five such non-consensual teenaged wives, the last one being 14 when he was in his 70s. So, yeah. Either way, at the age of 13, Sacagawea was now the non-consensual wife of the then 35-year-old trapper. That in itself is a trial that most of us could not even begin to imagine. Now, for several years, Charbonneau and his young wives traveled around the Missouri River Basin in search of furs. But it was in 1804 they came upon the newly built Fort Mandan, 
about 12 miles north of present-day Washburn, North Dakota. It was built by the Corps of Discovery to serve as their wintering shelter for the Lewis and Clark Expedition of 1804 and 1805. And while the exploration team was holed up for the winter, they were interviewing local trappers and guides for someone who could act as an interpreter on their trip. They needed someone who could speak the multitude of languages of the various tribes. Between Charbonneau and Sacagawea, they certainly could do that. It's just one hang-up. Sacagawea was extremely pregnant. So they hired the Frenchman in Sacagawea, which William Clark affectionately nicknamed her Janie, and Clark invited them to move into the fort until the expedition left in the spring. And it was at Fort Mandan that Sacagawea gave birth to Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau on February 11, 1805. Meriwether Lewis wrote that the labor was tedious and the pain was violent, and that at 5 p.m. that evening, she delivered a fine boy. And that little baby boy instantly became everyone's favorite distraction, with the explorers giving him the nickname Pompey. William Clark actually took a particular shine to the child, and he would make it his life's mission to protect this boy. Two months later, the expedition moved out, heading up the Missouri River. One month into the trip, one of the canoes capsized, spilling all of its contents into the swift water. Sacagawea launched herself into the water to recover the journals and the records and the navigational equipment and even the packages of food and medicine. And she supposedly did this with an infant strapped to her back with a shawl. In anyone's eyes, she would be a hero. In Lewis and Clark's eyes, she was their savior. Both captains sang her praises in journals from then on, and they continued to do so until their dying days. They actually named that river in her honor. Now, in June of the same year, in 1805, Sacagawea and the expedition were caught in a massive storm that blew up suddenly. It caused a flash flood that nearly swept her and her infant son away. Had it not been for William Clark, who ended up pulling her to safety just in the nick of time. But she fell ill soon after, from what most now believe was pelvic inflammatory disease. She was vomiting and fevering and delirious and in excruciating gut pain. This time, it was Meriwether Lewis who came to her rescue, using what medicinal plant knowledge he had. He even made a special trek to a mystical sulfur spring to collect water as most people in this day often believed that such springs held medicinal qualities that could cure almost all ailments. Whatever he did, it worked. She rebound very quickly, and the trek continued. In fact, within days, she was making one of the most difficult portages of the entire journey. A few months later, Lewis and Clark stopped at a Shoshone camp to trade. Sacagawea put her language skills to use in bartering for supplies and horses on which they were going to cross into the Rocky Mountains. Now, it's halfway through this negotiation that the chief, a man named Kamehameha, came out to the traders. And that's when Sacagawea realized that Kamehameha was her own brother. She'd actually made it home. The journals say that she was beside herself with joy, laughing and crying and hugging when she realized where she was. Now, think about that for a second. It's been an extremely difficult four years, 
and a thousand weary miles since her capture. She must have been homesick and road-weary, particularly since she was only 16 years old, had just had a baby in a grueling labor, and nearly died from a serious illness just a few weeks before. And here was her opportunity to return to her family and live a relatively happy and comfortable life. Yet, when the expedition pulled out a few days later to begin the ascent into the Rocky Mountains, Sacagawea was voluntarily leading them. But the trek took far longer than expected, and those supplies acquired from her family dwindled to nothing. She foraged for roots and plants to sustain the party and to help them rebuild their strength. She's also reported to have administered mountain medicine and crafted new clothes and moccasins as the explorers wore through theirs. As the expedition neared the mouth of the Columbia River on the Pacific coast, she voluntarily gave up her favorite waist belt of beautiful blue beads so that Lewis and Clark could trade it for a luxurious otter skin robe as a gift for the President Thomas Jefferson. When the group finally reached the Pacific and were discussing where to build the fort, Sacagawea was given an equal vote on its location. On a side note, there was a slave with the expedition named York. He was also given equal standing when it came to voting for things. After they returned from the Pacific in 1806, Charbonneau and Sacagawea settled down in a Hidatsa village with their baby boy. They lived among the Hidatsa for three years, before William Clark finally convinced them to relocate to St. Louis, Missouri. Clark wrote numerous times telling them that he missed his little Pompey. So the couple moved to St. Louis in 1809. Charbonneau and Sacagawea bought some acreage from Clark and set themselves up at being farmers. William Clark enrolled little Jean-Baptiste in a boarding school so that he might be properly educated. And I found no explanation as to why, but it's likely that they hated farming that much. It just wasn't for them. So Charbonneau and Sacagawea moved once more, this time to Fort Manuelisa in North Dakota in 1811. That's about 70 miles south of present-day Bismarck. And there, in 1812, Sacagawea gave birth to a little girl named Lizette. Fur trader Henry Brackenridge was at Fort Lisa in 1812, and recorded in his journal that Sacagawea was suffering from an unknown illness, though the symptoms resembled the pelvic inflammatory disease that she had suffered for years earlier. Brackenridge also wrote that Sacagawea knew she was dying, and she longed to go back to her Shoshone home. He states that she died on December 20th, 1812, of a putrid fever. The clerk of the fort recorded that she was good and the best woman in the fort, aged about 25 years at the time of her death. Her final resting place is yet to be discovered. William Clark immediately petitioned for legal custody of both children, and since Toussaint was not in a position to care for an infant, he agreed. Custody was finally awarded in the courts in August of 1813. And then her story went quiet, at least until the 1920s when the women's suffrage movement was gaining steam, and Sacagawea's story suddenly became more important than ever. Now, like so many historical people, the myths and the legends that surround Sacagawea range from she had a love affair with William Clark, 
which she didn't, to she escaped from Charbonneau and lived out her life married into the Comanche tribe, which she didn't, to she lived at Fort Bridger under a different name with a different husband and different children, which she totally didn't, to she died of old age in Wyoming and is buried on the Wind River Reservation. None of those things are true. Some of the quote-unquote facts are slightly skewed. For example, there are some sources out there that state that Sacagawea had another son named Basil. Basil was the son of Toussaint Charbonneau and Otterwoman, his other wife. And he would have been half-siblings to Sacagawea's children, Jean-Baptiste and Lisette. So you have to watch when you're reading about her, because not all the information you see out there is true. Then, starting around the early 1900s, Sacagawea's story began to be sensationalized and romanticized and fictionalized to make it more exciting. But the truth is, without all that nonsense, this young woman's life was incredible. She was instrumental in the success of Lewis and Clark's expedition across the virgin territory of the Louisiana Purchase. Without her, it would not have ended the same way. Her likeness has been immortalized on countless statues and plaques, postage stamps, and in the names of places throughout this country. She was represented on a dollar coin in 2000, where she's depicted carrying her son, John Baptiste. And on January 17, 2001, President Bill Clinton granted her a posthumous decoration as an honorary sergeant in the Army. These four women endured incredible hardship, and each played a part in the shaping of North America, and even more so in the shaping of the women's suffrage movement. They're icons of strength and determination, and still serve as role models to young women all over the world. And with that, I would like to thank you for listening to another episode of the Frozen Frontiers podcast. Please check out the website for links to great resource materials and documents, like journals and maps of the time period. Join me again in a few weeks for the next episode, and until then, have a great weekend, everybody, and keep your powder dry. Thank you.